0: If you're in Psalm 80, say amen. Amen. Okay, we'll get there in just a moment. I want to tell you a story. I think I told you several years ago about my son. Uh, I I can't remember how old he was, but he was, I will tell you what stage of life that he was in. He was in the stage of life where he could go to a playground and he he could do just about everything. Um, He was almost like dangerously capable. Um, But he, he was also at the stage where he didn't understand that he was incapable and so he believed he was capable of everything and and that he could do anything. And he was also in that stage where he just didn't want help with anything. You know what I mean? Your kid's ever been there? Grandkids ever been there? Um, he always he always said this. I do. I do. And so we were at the playground one night when Mama was at heart to heart and took him to a, just a, a, one nearby our house. And it had a rock wall and. And he went to the rock wall and said, I do. And so I just went and sat on the bench and I said, there's no way he's going to be able to scale the rock wall. And he began to figure it out, fell a couple times, you know, really inconsequential because it was pretty low where he fell. But he kind of started getting the hang of it. And I I sat over there on the bench and began to contemplate what a good parent would do in this situation, (laughs) because, I mean, this was more than than he was capable of surviving, um, without a potential injury, um, and if he made it to the top, there's no way he's getting down safely, and and so um, I just thought WWJD? You know, what would Jenny do in that situation? And um, I didn't wear the bracelet, but it was just part of my decision making process. Um, and I, I can re- remember just the spirit of Jenny speaking so clearly to me in that moment that Tyler, go help him. But I thought, you know what, I'm kind of, I'm running low on sermon illustration material, and this could evolve into something powerful. And so I want to take a risk. I want to see what happens. And so we began to climb up, and he, he kind of got to that, that like, six-foot level where it's, I'm kind of getting nervous. It had to have been probably eight foot, nine foot tall. And, uh, and he, he just goes up to the top, and he's not looking around, not looking down, not looking scared. So I just sit there and say, let's just see what this kid does. And, and he gets to the top, and I said, there's no way he's going to go down by himself. And I said, I, you know, the voice of Jenny is speaking again. Go put your hand on his rear end. Make sure he gets down safe. And I said, nah, let's just see how this plays out. And um, so I could see his little foot trying to reach down to the, the little peg. Um, and he would almost get the nerve to like let go and go down to the next one. And his hand would let go and he would hang right back on. He'd look at it again. And, and he, that, that happened for maybe 30, 40 seconds and, and, and then he looked over to me as to non-verbally say, can you come help me? And I just sat there. <laughs> and my whole mentality was, if you needed help, big boy, you should have asked before you went on the rock wall. And, and whenever I, you know, I would have probably helped you, maybe. And so he couldn't get nervous. So then he started asking, Daddy, can you help me? And I thought, what would Jenny do? I'll do the opposite. And so I just sat there. And it's just the tough love that he needed in that moment. And then he started crying. Daddy, I can't do it. I'm scared. I'm going to fall. And so I got up. Jenny, I got up. And I went and I helped him down until he got about three-fourths of the way down. He said, I do. And he wanted to do the rest of it, right? Here's what happened is that Kevin's independent spirit actually drove him to a place of dependence. His I do spirit eventually put him in a situation where he couldn't do. And he had to plead for help. He got himself in a situation that he couldn't get himself out of. And, and he's outgrown that in some areas But he still carries that same tendency. And so do you. And so do I. Tend to want independent until we can no longer be independent. And then we say, can you help me, God? We tend to say, I do. As God's saying, I'd love to help you. Like from the floor up, I'd love to help you. No, I do. I do, God. I do. I do in my marriage. I do at work. I do in my ministry. I do in my parenting. I do. I do. And then we end up following down the path of I do for so long that we get to the top of the rock walls of life and we look up and say, uh, can you help me? Because our independence leads us to a place where we can no longer be independent and survive. Why do I say that? Because that's exactly where the people of God are in Psalms chapter 80. They have climbed up to the top of a rock wall and, and God, they, they have went down the path of I do for so long that God says, OK, hands off. I'm going to let the Babylonians come in and just ransack you and they're going to take you into exile. At least those of you who survive, they're going to they're going to take down the temple. They're going to brag about it. You're going to be miserable. There's going to be bloody bodies in the street and there were. And now Asaph writes this prayer song that would become a permanent part of their hymn book to remind generations to come in the temple and now us today, that saying I do doesn't work very well. It would do better to just live in the posture of dependence upon God. But what if we don't? What if we get to the same place that the children of Israel got to, where they're just a mess? What do we do? Asaph writes a prayer song to show us. This is what you do if you get up to the top of the rock wall out of your own stubbornness and independence and you're ready to turn back to God, you pray a prayer, a worshipful prayer of dependence upon God. And he's going to show us what that looks like. Topic, the, the title rather of the sermon tonight is Worship and Dependence. And so what he does first is he, he kind of pulls out a picture album, if you would. And he, he shows us two pictures of, of what the children of Israel look like at this very moment. The situation they found themselves in that they couldn't get themselves out of. He kind of paints it for us in two pictures. One of a flock, a sheep and their shepherd, and one of a vine and their gardener. Now now, now I want to read it and then I'll explain a little bit of it to you. Look at verses one through six. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. So the very first picture Asaph gives us of God's people at this point in time was a picture of like this aimless flock with an angry shepherd. If you paid attention to what we read, it's exactly the picture that he drew. Israel had once been this beloved uh, flock with a a glad shepherd, but that wasn't the case anymore. Now the Lord is still their shepherd. God hasn't changed. But something has clearly changed because the verse said that God is angry with them. That's what it implies in verse 4. In fact, he gets even more specific. He's angry over his people's prayers. Now, now what's that all about? Well, Israel had this form of worship at this point, this form of praying at this point. But something was amiss because the very prayers through which they once offered worship and received the blessings and grace of God now made God angry and even drew discipline. I don't know if that seems odd to you, but it seems odd to me that God tells us to pray. Doesn't he, Brother Gary? He tells us to pray. You have not because you ask not, Right? He teaches his disciples how to pray, yet it's possible that we can pray and make them mad. How is he mad, verse 4, at the prayers of his people? Well, I compare that to a verse in Proverbs. It teaches us. Look at Proverbs 28, verse 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Have you ever thought about your prayer? can be something that God detests. Your very prayer, the thing he tells you to do can make him sick to his stomach, which is the word picture we get in the Bible of something that's an abomination to God. He detests it. How can that be? Here's how it can be. When we live independent of him, when we do our own thing as Israel did, when we reject his word, turn our ear away from his word, then go to him in prayer as though nothing ever happened. When we pray and ask God for something, at the same time we say amen and continue to live our lives independent of his word, that makes him upset. I think of it like this, a student that goes to math class. They slouch in their desk all day, they fall asleep, they don't do their assignments, they don't listen, they're messing around, they're on their phone, and then here comes the midterm, or here comes the final, and they fail the test. And then they had the audacity to go to the teacher's desk and say, hey, do you mind giving me at least a D in this? Can you give me a better grade? Tell me that teacher wouldn't be a little turned off, a little upset. Brother K, wouldn't you at that point want to say, well, you can just go back to your desk because I have nothing nice to you to say right now. And obviously God is gracious, but he's also holy. And he's just. And the way that he gets actually angry at our prayers, and Solomon uses an even stronger word, an abomination, is when we live our lives independent of the shepherd. We leave his pasture. We live independent of him, but we get in trouble. We come back and say, oh God, but then he gives us what we want and we run right back out of the pasture. That's when our actual prayers, even worshipful prayers, become something that makes God sick to his stomach. So that's the first picture, and that's not a pretty one. The second one's of of an unattended vine with a disengaged shepherd. The first one's an aimless flock with an angry shepherd, rather an unattended vine with a disengaged gardener. So Israel had once been a beautiful vine with a, a diligent gardener, but not anymore. Asaph goes on in verse 8 through 11, and he describes their past condition. It was beautiful. They were a beautiful vine. Look at verse 8 through 11. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and disca- cause it to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it. The boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her, her, her boughs unto the sea and her branches unto the river. What, what's the picture of? He's talking about their beautiful past in, in Egypt and, and the exodus and the promised land. and The establishment of the kingdom of David and Solomon. That's what he's talking about. It was a beautiful thing to behold. But then verses 12 through 15 Say, here's what you are now is a vine. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way to pluck her, the boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It was wonder, it was one day uh, beautiful and flourishing, but but today at this point when he wrote this prayer song, it, it was awful. It was ravaged. He he used the picture of a wild boar rooting and and ravaging the vine. You study the boar under the Mosaic law. It was an unclean animal. What Asaph was doing was poetically using the the wild boar as a metaphor, an illustration or example, a representation of the Gentile enemy in Babylon who just took them captive. So, So here's the situation that Israel found themselves in. They were a flock of sheep with an angry shepherd, and they were a vine with a disengaged gardener. Now think about this for a moment. Sheep don't protect themselves. They don't clean themselves. They can barely rest well on their own, and a vine doesn't nurture itself. It doesn't protect itself. It doesn't water itself. Sheep need a loving and present shepherd, not an angry one. Vines need a diligent and disengaged or are engaged gardener, not a disengaged gardener. The point is that Israel was meant to live a life of dependence upon their shepherd and their gardener if they wanted to thrive. But they chose rather to live apart from their shepherd and, and apart from their gardener. Now they found themselves in a situation where they're forced to be dependent upon him. And it's amazing how similar we are to the children of Israel sometimes. God chose us, God saved us, he's our shepherd, yet we wander from the flock, don't we? We, we? we try out the greener grass of the world. We leave the protection and care of the shepherd only to find that the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. In fact, there's no spiritual nourishment in the world apart from God, is there? So, so what do we do? We find ourselves in a situation just like they did. And you know what we ought to do? We ought to model. We we ought to follow, rather, the model of Asaph's prayer in three verses in this psalm. His prayer to dependence, and it comes by way of of a musical term called a refrain. There's a repeated refrain in this psalm three times. Verse 3, verse 7, and verse 19. We would call it today a chorus. A chorus, refrain means to repeat. A chorus is the repeated part of a song after each stanza. So, so when we sing, um, how great thou art, a great hymn of the faith, right? Oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder, consider all the works thy hands have made, worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the roaring thunder, uh, thy power throughout the universe displayed. That's the stanza. What's the refrain? What's the chorus? Then sings my soul, I started out too high. My Savior God, to thee how great thou art. And then we go back to sing stanza two and we come back to the chorus. Back to stanza three, come back to the chorus. The chorus is, is, is really the hook of the song. It's the core of the song. It's what the stanzas climax to. And that's how Asaph wrote this psalm. He gave us a picture in his stanzas of what the people look like. But then he gave us, he interrupted these stanzas three different times with a repeated refrain, a chorus. And this is the prayer that we pray if we find ourselves up on the top of a rock wall crying out for help. Even if we got ourselves there. And it involves several things. Number one, we should be dependent upon God for repentance. He said this, turn us again. And these are all all three verses here. Turn us again, O God. That verb turn is the 12th uh, most often used verb in the entire Old Testament. It's, It's really interesting what form the verb is written in. If you want to study with me for a moment. The form of the verb in Hebrew is causative. I don't think I'm smart. I had to study this from other people. But Asaph is praying literally that God might cause him to be turned back to him. And the implication, the greater point is clear. We can't turn ourselves back to God. He must turn us back. It's the idea of repentance. Do you understand that repentance doesn't begin with our power? It begins with our powerlessness. It doesn't begin with our ability. It begins with our inability. Repentance begins with the admission that we can't even repent without God's help. Now, I'm not going to just base that on these verses alone. I'm going to show you in the New Testament how how that repentance is is written in, in, in Acts and the epistle of Timothy as a gift that God grants first. Acts 11, verse 18, look at this verse. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted, given repentance unto life. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So repentance doesn't begin with us. Repentance begins with God. It's a gift from him. Now turning back to God still involves personal responsibility. It just doesn't begin there. And listen, church, please, please listen. That's where we go wrong a lot of times. We realize we're heading in the wrong direction, so we pray a prayer of confession, but a few days later, we find ourselves going in the same direction. Why do we do that? Because we didn't start by placing our dependence upon God to turn us. We tried to turn ourselves. We heard a message preached from the preacher, it stirred our heart. We found an altar, and we took it upon ourselves to turn ourselves. You know what that's called? Self-reformation. And you will not defeat sin because you decided to. You will defeat sin whenever you allow God. To begin the process of truly turning your heart and changing your mind. Repentance is this. It begins this way. When you cry out to God. Hey God, I'm I'm headed in the wrong direction. I, I don't even possess the ability to turn myself around. I want to. I know I need to. I know how to. But I can't. So God, turn me back to you. And when you start with dependence... God will give you what you need to begin making the changes necessary to truly repent. Does that make sense? It begins with God. We're dependent on him. Sometimes we think I just got to pull myself up by the bootstraps and get right with God. Then my life will get better. No, you need to cry out to God in total dependence from the get go. I can't do this. That's where he says started. Okay, continues with the next phrase that is repeated in all three of your frames. Look at it. And cause thy face, verse number three you can look at, and cause thy face to shine. So now we should be dependent upon God for grace. This phrase, cause thy face to shine, is of course, if you know your Bible, it's echoing the the, the blessing pronounced by Aaron and even priests beyond him over God's people in Numbers chapter six. You'll know this verse, I guarantee it. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. How many have heard that verse before? You're familiar, very familiar with that verse. So, so when we pray, let your face shine upon us, here's what we're asking God to do. We're asking him to smile upon us again, to let us live under his favor once again, to to allow us to stand in the midst of his daily grace and bountiful blessings like we used to. So my question is this practically, how is that going to happen? Brother Brett, does that mean that we just pray the priestly prayer that Aaron prayed and all of a sudden we are standing amidst the showers of blessing? Is it just a priestly prayer? How do we go about this? Well, it certainly can be a prayer that we pray, but really it's a position of our heart and our life. Here's what happens. We position ourselves to the place where His grace and blessings flow. One old preacher said we got to get under the spout where the glory comes out. To borrow a line from my fair lady, and I'm not talking about Jenny, I'm talking about the musical. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. That means if if you want to get wet in Spain, you don't go hang out in the mountains. You get where the water is. And that's in the plains, they say. My question then, Dad, is where are the plains of God's grace? Where do the showers of blessings fall? Where does his face shine upon his people? I'll tell you where. Within the circle of dependence upon God. Let me elaborate at that by by using a New Testament principle given to us in John chapter 15. Look at the screen. Abide in me, Jesus says. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Two more verses out of that passage. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will. It shall be done unto you. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. My face might shine upon you. That your joy might be full. You know where God's greatest blessings are? When you're abiding with Him, when you remain attached to Him, when you are depending upon Him in a daily posture of God, I need you, not a daily posture of I do, I do, I do. You want to turn God's face from you really quick, continue to tell Him I do, I do. Reverse that to God, you do, you do, and that's when you get under the spout where the glory comes out. That's the posture of dependence upon God where the greatest blessings of his fall. Yeah. Look at the next phrase in the refrain. He says, and we shall, verse 3, be saved. So he's already said, God, I'm dependent upon you for repentance. I'm dependent upon you for grace. And now I'm dependent upon God for deliverance. Deliverance. That's what he meant by the word saved. Now, now, that word most often is interpreted in the New Testament to mean saved from hell, right? The initial salvation experience when we call upon Christ, Romans uh, 10 13, for we call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. But, but, but here, it, it means something different. It means delivered from like your current mess, your current devastation. What Asaph meant directly in his prayer song. Is God deliver us from the consequences of our sin. Deliver us from exile. And listen, we too need to be saved from the devastation that our sin has brought into our life. That's why I believe it's okay to pray, God, I know I've gotten myself into this mess. Lord, Lord, will you help me turn from it? I can't turn from it on my own. Will you cause your face to shine upon me again? And will you save me from the mess I put myself in? It's exactly where Kevin found himself at the top of the rock wall. He said, I do, I do, I do, I do. And then eventually he said, you do. Deliver me, is in essence what he was telling his father. Get me out of the situation that I got myself into but I can't get myself out of. And we find ourselves, right? On top of the rock walls of our own making, And don't let your pride kick in at that point. Don't jump off the rock wall. Don't make things worse. Don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps because after all, you got yourself in this mess. You would do well to just stop right there and cry out to God, save me. Deliver me. Help me. Don't make matters worse by trying to get yourself right. You're not going to work your way out of your messes. You're not going to plan your way out of your own message. You're not going to medicate your way out. You're not going to think your way out. You're not going to seminar your way out. You're not going to counsel your way out. You're not going to give your way out. Sometimes we get ourselves in situations where only God can get us out. We do well to humble ourselves and say, Daddy, help me. And if you think that that is being blasphemous, it's not. Because Abba Father, he's our daddy. And in that situation where Kevin's on top of the rock wall, the situation he found himself in, he didn't necessarily call me, oh, father, (laughs) sir, Prater. I mean, I would have liked that. (laughs) He just cried out, daddy, brother Mark. That's all he cried out. He needed his daddy in that moment, not his father. And isn't it great that even in our worst moments, God is still our daddy. Our Abba Father. It's amazing. But when we cry out for God to deliver us, the rest of the psalm, this is beautiful church, incredibly beautiful. The rest of the psalm is kind of written in like a messianic prophecy or messianic psalm type way that has a lot of New Testament implications. And it shows us just how God delivers us when we cry out. And I'll give you I'll give you a a good hint. He delivers us through his son, Jesus it's amazing. Look at verses 14 through 17. This is so neat. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine, and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and in the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. Now, I want you to notice something, and I had to study this to get it, it didn't jump off the page at me. But Asaph started in verse 14 by by talking about a vine. He progresses to a branch in verse 15. He progresses to a man in the first part of verse 17. And then he progresses to the son of man in the last part of verse 17. Now, these terms initially, obviously, refer to the nation of Israel in this psalm. But they are ultimately only fulfilled in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, He is the Son of Man, that's what Luke calls Him. And and, and so ultimately the psalmist is teaching us today that God, through the Son of Man, through His Son Jesus Christ, has provided all we will ever need to be delivered out of the messes of our own making. Three statements, catch this. In Jesus, God provided someone to become what we've never been able to be. Now take the vine imagery. Clearly, in verses 8 through 14, it refers to Israel. We get that. But the vine image, by the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus is using that as a way to say, I'm the vine. What does that mean? What Israel could never be, Jesus had become in her place, on her behalf, as her Savior. And what we as Gentiles could never become in our own power or by our own efforts, Jesus became in fact, he became sin for us so that we might become righteous before God. This is the gospel. I figured I would get some amens. Just figured. Second statement. In Jesus, God provided someone in a place we've never been able to attain. Asas speaks of the man of thy right hand. I'm talking about how he delivers us. I'm building to something. In verse 17, he says, the man of thy right hand. The right hand was a place of favor and authority and power. The New Testament tells us that we have such a one in the Lord Jesus who is sitting at the right hand of the Father and making intercession for us. Romans 8, 34, it is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Hebrews 7, 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. That come to God by him, seeing he, excuse me, ever liveth to make intercession for them. Watch, this is such good news for anyone who finds themselves having wandered from the shepherd or detached themselves from the care of the gardener. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He stands ready to make intercession to the Father on your behalf if you will just place yourself again in a posture of dependence upon him. If you humble yourself and say, turn, turn me, O God, cause your face to shine upon me and save me. He has provided a Jesus Christ as your intercessor to hear that prayer and make that happen. Statement three in Jesus, God provided someone to do what we could never do. Asaph speaks of the son of man whom thou made a strong for thyself. What does that mean for a New Testament believer? It means that when we're attached to Christ, abiding in Christ, dependent upon Christ, we have all the grace and the wisdom and the strength we ever need to accomplish His will. In fact, in in verse number 18, he cries out for Christ to quicken His people. The word we use today is revive. We sang about it, revive us again. It's, It's the act of bringing something back to life. It's not giving life to something initially, it's something that had life and no longer has life and now we are bringing it back to life and this is what God will do for us through Jesus. He will revive us. The life and vitality we once knew with him when we were dependent upon him in his pasture under the care of the gardener, the life that, 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 that we forfeited through our independent, um, uh, self-directing, sinful ways. Listen, that is the life that through Jesus Christ can be uh, uh, in, breathed back, sorry for my English, breathed back into our spiritual lungs. The picture I think of Revive when I go to church and preach Revivals, I always tell them the greatest picture is is of somebody that was drowning. The lifeguard pulls them out of the water and begins begins the mouth-to-mouth procedure of CPR, which I'm not sure they do that as much anymore. But that's the picture that's in my mind because what they're trying to do is breathe life back into their lungs because they can't. The person once had life, now they have very little of it, if any of it, and they are trying to resuscitate them, revive them, breathe life back into them. And I think that's the picture of what Asaph is asking God to do through Jesus. He's saying, give us life again. Revive us again. Turn us, cause your face to shine upon us and deliver us. And the good news of the latter part of that psalm is that when we pray the prayer, Jesus will do it. Do you get that? That's what it means for us. The Son of Man is the one that goes to the rock wall and says, let me help you down. He's the one that gives us the gift of repentance. And and He's the one that gives us the gift of grace. and He's the one that gives us the gift of deliverance. And I love what happens in the end of verse 18. Because when we are quickened, here's the natural result. We will call upon thy name. In other words, we'll worship again. We'll praise again. We'll find ourselves in a daily posture of dependence upon God again. Calling upon his name daily. God, you turn me. God, you cause your face to shine upon me. God, just save me. Lord, you breathe life back into me and I will call upon your name again. In summary, church, if you find yourself in a situation that you got yourself into and can't get yourself out of, you need to pray a prayer of dependence. It includes repentance, grace and deliverance. I want to close with one more observation from this prayer. It's not a major point. It's just an observation that I think is incredibly encouraging, especially if right now you find yourself kind of, I don't know, a flock, a sheep with an angry shepherd, having walked down the path of I do for so long that even your prayers are making God mad. If you find, your plate, if you find yourself just, just detached from the care of the gardener, climbing up the rock walls of life, This is so encouraging. Look at verse number three. I don't have this on the screen because I just learned this this afternoon. But look at verse three. He says this, turn us again, O God. Drop down to verse seven. He adds something. Turn us again, O God of, what's the next word? Host. Host. Drop down to the very last verse, verse 19. He adds something here. Turn us again, O Lord God of host. Now, these are subtle differences, but they can for And listen to me, I'm not trying to act like a scholar. I got nothing to prove to you. I'm not trying to put these weird things together to act smart. This is incredible. In verse 3, Asaph is offering just a worshipful prayer to God in general. In verse 7, he's offering a worshipful prayer to a strong God. He calls him God of hosts. You are the commander of all armies, including Babylon. But in verse 19, he's offering a worshipful prayer to a strong God that is his God. He said, Lord, all capital letters, Lord God of host. The Hebrew's word for Lord, do you know it? Yahweh. Do you know what that signified to his people? That is the covenantal name for God. Get this, please. God had earlier made a covenant with Israel way before they ever messed up. And here's what Asaph is saying God will never break that covenant. He is bound to them as their God, and they are his people no matter what. Now you might say, well, we're not Israel. How does that apply to us today? Oh, you forgot our study in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1. If you're saved like Israel, you've been chosen, you've been adopted. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been sealed. You've been secured by God for all eternity. I mean, at the moment of salvation, you entered into a covenant relationship with God through Christ. You know what that means? God is bound to you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never put you up for adoption. You will never be put into spiritual foster care because God was an irresponsible parent. Even when you live your life or an area of your life independent of your Heavenly Father, even when you break your end of the deal, God will always be faithful to His. And when you cry out to Him, church, as a result of your own sinful choices, please hear me, you aren't just crying out to God in general. You aren't just crying out to a strong God. You are crying out to Yahweh, your God. A personal God who will always love you and always call you His child. So here's what it means for us. Don't be afraid of coming back to God. Don't ever be intimidated to come back home to the Father. Be humble, yes. Be broken, yes. Be sincere, yes. But never be afraid. He loves you. He will always be your Father. Even at times when you don't want him to be your father, he's Yahweh. I can't even begin to think how I would feel after loving Kevin so well for 18 years. And then he just running away from us. I can't even tell you how much my heart would break. Never came back for Christmas. Never came back for Thanksgiving, never called, never text. Wanted nothing to do with us ever again. Wanted to live independent of his father and his mother. I can't even begin to describe. Can't begin. But I can tell you this. There is a covenant of love there. That's my boy. I understand there's consequences. I understand the danger of enabling somebody. And I get all of that. But at the end of the day, you know what his last name is? My last name. He bleeds my blood. Carries my genes. That's my boy. And as much credit as I want to give myself in being a great father in that situation, I don't compare to God's love. I can't even touch God's love. God is the perfect heavenly father. And so maybe Asaph ended by revising the last refrain in such a way as to remind his people in future generations. When you really make a mess out of things, don't be scared to come back to God. He's still your God. He will always love you. And doesn't Luke 15 confirm that? The prodigal came home. And what did the father do? Run to the prodigal. Why? Because that's what Yahweh does. That's what daddies do. That's what Abba fathers, that's how they care for their kids, even when their kids climb up a rock wall by saying, I do. That's just what dads do. And so if you find yourself, and I don't know on Wednesday night crowd, I don't know your heart, I don't know the situation. Maybe some of you are just, you are in a posture right now of dependence upon God, and I'm thankful for that. That's a blessing. Stay there. But if you're not in a posture of dependence upon God, you are in an area of your life where you are living independent of God, detached from the gardener, Wondering from the, and by the way, you can be a prodigal and be in the pew. So I'm not saying, it's not beyond possibility that there are some sheep that are here in body, but you're really far from here in heart. And if that's the case, don't be scared. Don't be afraid of God in a way that, oh, I I just, I got to get my act together, then I can come to an altar and pray. No way, no way. The Father's waiting for you. You can't turn yourself. You've got to come cry out to Him. Turn me. Change my heart because I've tried and it's not happening. Cause your face to shine upon me and save me. And maybe you need to do that tonight. We've got a few minutes for minutes. Let's take some time to respond to God. we we'll just stand.